episode 238. Welcome to Data Skeptic, a podcast about data science and fake news from an algorithmic perspective. Here's your host, Kyle Polich. Coming to you from the Lemert Park neighborhood of Los Angeles, welcome to Data Skeptic. Today on the show, I'm discussing a novel application of deep learning and its application to help locate a phenomenon known as fast radio bursts. You may have seen some headlines, we'll call it fake news if you will, that these are extraterrestrial signals. I'll discuss that with my guest, it could be, but it doesn't seem very likely. Nonetheless, this is an interesting phenomenon. Something in nature is happening, we're observing it, and we don't really know what causes it yet. The field of astronomy seems to suggest we shouldn't get too excited about this being anything other than uh, an ordinary type of phenomenon. But I wanted to make sure everyone had the sufficient background from a skeptic's perspective to discuss this topic of the existence of extraterrestrials. Of course, we have to start with the famous Drake equation. It's a tool for estimating the odds of finding extraterrestrial signals from space. It has seven parameters. I'm not going to go through them here on the show. Well, let's pick one. How about F sub L, the percentage of life-bearing planets on which intelligence actually emerges? So if you'd followed the earlier parts of the equation, you'd know we're up to a point where we'd calculated some percentage of, you know, star systems with planets and those planets that are capable of sustaining some form of life. Doesn't mean that they're close in temperature to our own, just they can't be a million degrees, and I'm sure there's a lower bound compared to that as well. What's the range with... What's the range within which some feasible biological mechanism could allow for life to perpetuate and for computation to happen? Now, no one knows what that F sub L value should be. Well, I know it's between 0% and 100%, so that's a starting point. And we can debate the particulars, but the Drake equation gives us a, a path by which we can arrive at some estimate of the number of potential alien civilizations out there who we just have to listen well enough to hear. And for even conservative inputs to those parameters of the Drake equation, you come up with some non-trivial number of civilizations, usually. This leads us to our second skeptical tentpole, the Fermi paradox. If it seems to be the case that life ought to be abundant, just given the vastness of the universe, then where the heck is everybody? One last preliminary before we get into the interview. In passing, I talk very quickly about a problem called the tank problem. For those not familiar, let me give you the background here. This is sort of a famous story, maybe a folktale, I'm not really sure. But in uh, early days of machine learning, there was some team trying to determine from uh, images, very early image classification, not as sophisticated as the stuff we have today, but the stuff we have today exists because people were doing different things early on. And this particular team said, can we look at a series of photographs that have tanks and those that don't have tanks and build some sort of tank detection algorithm? And to their great surprise, machine learning did an excellent job on this project. You know, the accuracy was through the roof, but the team was appropriately skeptical. This didn't sound right. Blow your mind results do not happen on the first try of machine learning, despite what many bloggers would have you believe. And as this team investigated their tank problem, they discovered something like all of the tanks were filmed during the day and all of the non-tank photos happened to have been taken at night. So what they had actually built was a day-night detector. And day-night detection, you know, good job on that. That's useful. But it's also a rather trivial problem. Probably can be solved by some very simple methodology looking at the color intensities and light and stuff in the image itself. Not to say machine learning couldn't do a better job, but detecting day and night is a lot easier than detecting tank and not tank. So anyway, that's the story for when we get to it. Hi, my name is Jerry, uh, Jerry John. I'm here at UC Berkeley in the astronomy department. I work with the Berkeley SETI Research Center. 
So SETI stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. A lot of people who have heard of SETI may mistake SETI for the SETI Institute, which is an institute of SETI research based in Mountain View. But in fact, SETI itself is a field. Uh, the particular project that I'm affiliated with is called the Breakthrough Listen Project. The most recent effort started in 2015, aiming to conduct the most comprehensive effort on SETI research. SETI is the search for advanced civilizations as opposed to uh, biosignatures uh, that uh, a lot of efforts undergoing in search for primitive life. SETI, on the other hand, we're looking for advanced civilizations who may have developed similar technologies as our own, uh, and we can detect their technological signals, uh, which may be either intentionally sent to us or unintentionally leaked. We have, in the past, broadcasted intentional messages. That is a field called METI. It's, it's up to debate the philosophical implications of sending a signal before we receive one. In general, I think in the field of SETI, most people think the first civilization that we, we would like to become into contact with is likely to be much more advanced than our own. And it's perhaps uh, in our best interest to be listening quietly first before uh, we try to disturb the peace, so to say. What is the Breakthrough Listen initiative actually listening to? The SETI problem is really about the question of search for life. It's to, to answer the question, are we alone in the universe? So there, there's a lot of other methods that people use that tries to detect biosignatures. SETI itself, it's, uh, it's sort of takes a different approach. The question we ask that, is it possible that there are advanced civilizations that have built technology that are similar to our own and are transmitting signals, either intentionally or unintentionally, that we can pick up with our radio telescopes, radio and optical. So we do work with both radio telescopes and an optical experiment. The main effort, the main focus and effort is in the radio band. You know, you're listening, and I know it's, it's radio astronomy. We're listening for radio signals. Why do we think that that would be the channel of communication? Ah, that's a very good question. There are many reasons, and, and uh, you know, I, I do not uh, know all of them well off the top of my head. One of them is that uh, there is a particular band of radio frequency, narrow band signals, where signals of essentially just sine waves, they, they essentially can go unperturbed through the inter, intercellular medium. And so there's, usually there's so much, uh, so much dust, so much scattering happening in the intercellular medium that makes a lot of emission does a lot of impairments, gives a lot of noise to a lot of messages transmitted. So radio signals in particular is, provides some of, the, some of the frequencies, provides a good channel to interstellar message transport. And then, of course, there are a lot of these massive installations where you get your listening information from. What do those observations look like in the database or, or wherever they're stored? You know, what is your raw data? Physically, uh, radio tel how a radio telescope works is that there's a radio antenna that just records the voltages from the electromagnetic waves that hit the dish and concentrate it onto the antenna. Uh, these voltages have a face to them, so they are, these are complex time series. A breakthrough listen, in the past, we have primarily been working with the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia and the Parkes Telescope in, in Australia. And recently, we officially started the collaboration with a Meerkat Array uh, in South Africa. So, for example, at one of these telescopes at Greenbank, uh, our data rate from the raw voltages is uh, about half a petabyte per day. So we cannot afford to store all of that data to disk. What we do is we typically take a Fourier transform in, into Fourier domain. These make what we call waterfall plots 
or in other domain, these are called spectrograms. So these are basically Fourier transforms as a function of time. So you can see how each Fourier components changes over time. Once we take the Fourier transform, we can average down the data rate by a factor of 100. And we store these two-dimensional, uh, essentially image-like data to disk. And if there's a particular interesting uh, signal phenomena at a particular observation, we do extract those raw voltages and save them as well. So this data then is, uh, I would assume, very noisy. But of course, there's some natural phenomenon before we get to the, you know, perhaps uh, not natural phenomenon, if we call it that. Different stellar events can kind of contribute signal as, as well as the natural noise you get. What does the typical data set look like? Is it mostly entropic or are there a lot of phenomenon that you're seeing from other astronomical things? I think most observations nowadays, most of the data is actually uh, terrestrial signals. So the, the radio frequency spectrum is very crowded now from communication, satellite, and so on and so forth. And uh, it, in, for astronomy observations, uh, we typically pick radio quiet sites that are far away from civilization. But even so, the most of the signals that we detect are uh, terrestrial signals. We do have large periods where essentially there's no distinguishable signal in the data at all. It's, it's just thermal instrumental noise. But uh, among the signals that we do have, still the majority of them are, are terrestrial communication signals. Is there a challenge in filtering those out? Even though they seem like, you know, we as a species are creating them, I don't think I would, there's any system of record of who's broadcasting necessarily at any time. How much of a challenge is it to filter that sort of thing out? Absolutely. So that's, that I would say is the main challenge in a lot of uh, radio astronomy. The way we do it is, uh, is it's a simple idea of spatial filtering. Uh, so these radio telescopes form beams that are very directed. They're they only sensitive to a very small uh, solid angle. And therefore, uh, by looking at several pieces of solid angle at the same time, that's the main beam. At the same time, there are side lobes uh, of beam forming where these terrestrial signal could have come in because they're just so much brighter uh, compared to most things on the sky. So the reason, the, the way you can tell whether something is coming from a side lobe as opposed to the main beam, if you look at multiple patches of the sky at the same time, if a signal appears in more, more than one of the your primary beams uh, of your of your main beams, then you can tell that it's probably not from that patch of the sky. So that's that's the way we we use uh, the spatial filtering to tell if a signal is from a terrestrial source as opposed to something localized in the sky. Roughly speaking, how often does something uh, novel come up in these detections? Ah, uh, uh, so that is. Uh, <laughs> Um, that's a good question. Um, so novel, uh, so I guess there are two, uh, uh, there are two possibilities. One is how often is there something novel in the data? Uh, the other is how often do, uh, scientists actually find that novelty in the data? Uh, and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, a strong argument could be made that I think the first rate is higher than the second, which is why, uh, these novel, uh, you know, new techniques of data analysis are so interesting to us. Yeah, I don't think I've mentioned yet. We're talking largely a about a discussion that uh, is based on the paper you've co-authored, Fast Radio Burst 121102, Pulse Detection and Periodicity, a Machine Learning Approach. And uh, one of the interesting things I read in the paper that is not something I've encountered in my own career as a data scientist, but you had mentioned that there are cases where the data sets may still have signal that just wasn't discovered. 
Uh, and this is kind of fascinating to me because I'm generally squeezing every last drop I can out of my data sets. Can you talk a little bit about the workflow and how it could be that there's, I don't know, something sitting on an old drive, hard drive somewhere waiting to be discovered? I, I guess that's the main nature of the work of SETI. Uh, and a large bulk of our work at Breakthrough Listen is to collect the state-of-the-art data set because we know that there, there are only a few things you can filter out with traditional match filters. Mostly things that you've seen before that you know, you know, if you design this type of algorithm, you, you will be able to find them. Uh, even, even, even for those, it's typically not perfect, especially for a science where we're looking for something that is not extremely well-defined. It's such an open-ended problem. It, it can be sure that a lot of the discoveries are remain in the data set that we have collected. So that is, uh, that is part, of, part of the nature of this work. Uh, and also the data volume itself uh, prohibits uh, you know, immediate exhaustive search. And for that reason, it's a, it's a, it's a very open-ended problem. And it's a, it's a new problem. So what is a fast radio burst? Yeah, so fast radio bursts are these uh, millisecond duration. They're really short, fast bursts of energy. We now know at least one of them which is a source that repeatedly send out these signals. At least one of them we have localized in a dwarf galaxy more than 3 billion light years away. So these are extragalactic signals from very compact sources. Only about 300 of these signals were ever detected, and more than 200 of those uh, were from this particular source. Yeah, so, so the nature of the source is not perfectly understood. There's still a lot of theories out there. So the, the signal was uh, fast radio bursts. The first one was discovered only in 2007, which, you know, in data science terms is ancient ages. But uh, in astronomy terms, these are uh, very recent and exciting uh, discoveries. So that, I guess that also gives you an idea of your previous questions of how often do we find something new and unexpected. And how often do you see a fast radio burst in the data? So in this particular work, uh, we did the observation on this particular source, which we already know uh, it's a repeating source. It's the only repeating source of fast radio burst. And even for this source, the emission is very sporadic. So there could be months and years where you don't detect anything. And suddenly, uh, you know, this particular observation, which, for, which lasts for six hours, we found 93 bursts. Uh, within this observation. So that is the most number of bursts within a single observation. And you can see even within the single observation, uh, these signals vary greatly in strength and uh, their peak frequency. So uh, but I should say these are wideband signals. So it's completely uh, reasonable to expect that there are a lot of emissions that were just too weak for us to detect. But there's also uh, possible that uh, a lot of the times the source was actually dormant and it was not emitting at all. We don't know exactly uh, which is the case. So I personally, I, I'm in favor of science. I want to know the truth about uh, the underlying phenomenon. But in my heart, I do hope it's extraterrestrials because I think it's a more interesting universe if we know that there's someone else out there. What is the strongest case for believing that these might be of intelligent origin? <laughs> hmm. So off the record, this may not be a, a, the, <laughs> the correct answer, but this mostly comes from one paper that I think was authored by Avi Loeb at Harvard University, who proposed that these, these signals might be a techno signature. Uh, however, that's, that's not really the mainstream belief among scientists, because it does resemble, in a lot of ways, phenomena that we do understand now, which are, which are mostly pulsars. So these are inside of our galaxy. These are uh, signals of repeating periodic signals that have very similar structure 
to the fast radio bursts that we see who are from extragalactic. It's just a different energy scale. Got it. Yeah, I was going to bring up pulsars. As I recall, and I'm, I'm not a student of history, so apologies in advance if I get this wrong, but there was even a time when we had observed them before physics had explained them, and uh, they had been labeled LGMs for little green men, uh, kind of uh, colloquially implying, hey, maybe they're since they're so regular, they're of, of some intelligent origin. And that turned out not to be the case when the science caught up. Uh, ultimately, do you think that might be what happens here? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I think because of the advance in data science and, and the, the fact that we have access to so much data than before, fast radio bursts, the natural explanation of fast radio bursts will probably be uh, one of the few unsolved mysteries in astrophysics that will be solved in up, upcoming five to 10 years. How exciting. Yeah. Well, we were talking a little bit in the pre-interview about how uh, the field is relatively young, you know, sort of born in the 1950s. And of course, uh, telescopes have gotten better, the engineering has improved, all these sorts of things have happened. But for some time now, people have been looking at the same sorts of data sets you collected. What were the historical methodologies for how they would try and process them and do detections? Uh, and again, I'm, I'm not an expert on the, on, the, on the history of SETI. Particular types of signals have always been the focus of traditional detection. So uh, in our group, we mostly, for the technological signal, we focus on narrowband signals. So these are essentially just single sine waves. And the reason is that in, if you send single sine waves, that is the highest signal-to-noise ratio to send if you have a given energy budget, right? Because you're, you're, if in foyer space, you really you, you include less noise when your bandwidth mm -hmm. is low. So that's that's their arguments for why you should use uh, uh, why extraterrestrials would like to to use a signal like that. A lot of people may have heard of the project SETI at home. That was a screensaver computing. Uh, one of the one of the earlier examples of decentralized computing. They have seven different uh, match filters where they look for seven different types of signals that are postulated to be likely theoretically interesting as candidates of extra extraterrestrial signals. So one one of the uh, one of the interesting. Uh, applications of modern data science is that we have the potential to greatly expand the number of uh, different types of signals that we can search for. Ah, interesting. So yeah, I, I guess there's a couple of advantages then, right? You'd mentioned um, the greater breadth of signals, I guess. Uh, computational speeds are faster. There's a couple other uh, advantages to your technique, I think, right? Ah, so in terms of fast radio bursts, uh, in this particular example, we we took a data set that uh, that's this is an example where people build a match filter for the long, for a long time people thought was ideal, right? This these fast mm -hmm. radio bursts, I, I should mention that these are their quadratic relation between the arrival time and the frequency. So the quadratic relation is because of the uh, electrons, uh, the free electrons that are between the source and the receiver. So people have long thought that if you just have a perfectly parabolic assumption of the signal and you de-disperse it, which by which you mean you slide each frequency channel so that you remove this quadratic relation. If you do that, you're going to end up with a perfect match filter to get the highest signal-to-noise ratio possible. So in this particular observation, we have 4 gigahertz of bandwidth. This is a lot wider bandwidth than people have made observations before. And what we see is that there's a lot of frequency modulation in the signal and that most of the energy may come from a particular, you know, very frequency concentrated area. And therefore, if you, if you use uh, the original match filter, you are not really going to pick up a high signal to noise ratio because you're including a lot of regions that are just there aren't that much signals there. If it's difficult to design a perfect match filter, 
then if you can, uh, in our case, we simulated these pulses uh, on top of uh, the background observation. And if you train uh, a neural network to do this, then the deep learning extracts the more perfect features to, to detect these signals. And that's why we saw uh, higher performance, better sensitivity than the uh, traditional algorithm was able to pick up. Very exciting. Yeah. Um, when you were describing how the spectrograms you end up, I'm sorry, what was your word for it? Not spectrogram? Yeah, spectrogram, uh, it's, it's often used. It's also a term primarily used, I think, in, in audio. Yeah, that's where I'm coming from. Uh, we also use the term uh, waterfall plot because if you... Waterfall plot. Yeah, if you have the data coming in in real time, it kind of looks like a waterfall falling down. So that data can go nicely into any sort of image format, and then you're teed up rather nicely to try some deep learning. Yeah. Can you tell me a bit about the methodology you did to go from data to uh, the trained model? Yeah, so uh, in this particular case, uh, it's a supervised problem. So the objective is to detect this particular signals. The signals themselves are very rare. So you cannot have enough, you, we don't have enough labeled uh, real detections to, to train a network like that. So the lucky thing is that uh, the signal we're looking for are relatively simple, but the background is relatively complex. So we take advantage of the fact that these signals are rare, uh, we take observations where we're pretty sure there's no uh, no actual signals in them, and we inject these simulated uh, signals in them. And in this way, you can end up with a relatively well-balanced training set to do uh, supervised deep learning. There's some differences uh, and different challenges uh, when it comes to treating a waterfall plot as an image as opposed to, say, challenges in computer vision. One can argue that in a lot of these problems that the information complexity in spectrograms, in these waterfall plots, it's a lot lower than in computer vision. We do not have so much information packed up, you know, object next to object. What we do have challenges is, is for example, the vastly varying scale. So a signal can last for uh, a few milliseconds. Maybe some will last for, uh, you know, a uh, hundred times as long. Maybe some, some are very wide. Maybe some are very, very thin. And you need different resolutions, different panel sizes in order to uh, uh, detect these type of signals. Uh, and also in the presence are, are a lot of noise. So these are not just the interference, which are, these are essentially background objects in computer vision, but also they're just pure thermal noise on a level that's, that's much greater than when people say image denoising. It, it's literally the image is mostly just noise. That we find in the supervised setting to be not too difficult to deal with, uh, mainly because uh, the noise and the interference are in the same category as, as unwanted. So there are some particular uh, considerations of that when we design a network, such that in the beginning, uh, large kernels and large strides. So essentially, you, you pull together many pixels together at once so that you, you end up with effectively a multi-resolution feature in the first few layers. Uh, instead of just a single resolution. So there's there's some considerations in terms of building the, the model. But otherwise, in the, in the supervised case, it's not too challenging. Thanks to this week's sponsor, The Great Courses Plus. This is a great solution for lifelong learners like myself. You can stream thousands of videos on science, history, travel, health, wellness, professional development, photography, cooking, and much, much more. There's new subjects and lectures added every month. And you can watch it on your TV, laptop, tablet, smartphone, bring it with you on the go. The Great Courses Plus brings you serious lecture content. This week, we want to highlight their course, Mathematical Decision Making. 
Professor Scott P. Stevens from James Madison University takes us on a whirlwind trip across 24 lectures, exploring some of my favorite topics like decision trees, Bayesian analysis, Markov models, queuing, and stochastic optimization. Oh, throw in time series forecasting as well. You know, not long ago, executives faced with complex problems made decisions based on experience and intuition. You probably know how I feel about that. I only care for intuition when it has data to back it up. And that's the message of modernity. In this course, you'll learn about time series forecasting, linear regression, and a lot of other tools to help you be a better decision maker, one that is data-driven and mathematically founded. Best of all, we've got a special offer for you this week. I want you to start benefiting from the Great Courses Plus 2, and Data Skeptic listeners can get unlimited access to their entire library for free. To start your free trial, head over to thegreatcoursesplus.com slash data. Double check it. You got to get this right. They need to make mathematical decisions, and they do that by knowing where you came from. So let them know Data Skeptic told you to head over there. And it's thegreatcoursesplus.com slash data. I definitely appreciate the challenge initially of having an imbalanced data set. And I think uh, you have a smart approach to simulate some of these events to build up your training data set. Yeah. But I'm also reminded of this uh, legendary example of de- trying to detect tanks and they ended up detecting night versus day. Absolutely. How can you be sure that the mock examples don't uh, bear some unintended artifact of the creation process? Uh, yeah. So in this particular case, uh, we we're not sure, right? It's it's. I mean, uh, deep learning by itself is an overfitting technique, and that's why this this tank versus night and day problem happens. So in this case, we we use it as a tool, right? We we use it on real data, and we found real detections. And for all of those real detections, we we cannot just trust a neural network as the final answer, but we use the traditional technique, we scrutinize every single one of these detections, we convince ourselves that in the traditional astrophysical sense, these are real signals. I'd love to dig into the network a little bit more. You were starting to describe the general architecture and um, the choice of using a stride rather than maybe a max pooling that might be common in other convolutional neural networks. Can you tell me a little bit about some of the methodology choices? The network itself is not too complicated in this case. It's mostly a modified version of an off-the-shelf residual network. Uh, And the motivation partly for using a residual network is that the signal we're looking for are relatively simple. We still need uh, sufficient capacity in the network to be able to filter out all the different kinds of noise. And, And therefore, in order to have such simple features be activating neurons all the way to the end of the layer, we really need these uh, residual connections. Um, so that's part of the motivation. And some of the other changes involves, you know, the earlier layers really having multiple scales. Uh, you know, in this particular uh, work, in this particular observation, it was not so crucial because all of the signals have the same, what we call dispersion measure. Essentially, all the signals are relatively similar in size. However, if you want to treat a more general problem where you want to find fast radio bursts, say, in a survey, you really have to treat the problem, you know, it, you have to take into account orders of magnitude difference in scale. And because of that, you, you should uh, use um, the initial kernels should be designed in such a way that, uh, you know, multi-resolutions are pulled together in, in the earlier features. Yeah, I'm sure you've heard some discussion about uh, what people have called the model interpretability crisis, that, you know, these yeah. deep learning systems are so complicated, we don't know how they work. Absolutely. And I, I don't want to jump on that bandwagon myself, because I, I have seen some really good work of people figuring out ways to 
you know, kind of inspect the network and learn something. I'm sure you've seen these convolutional examples where um, they break down like detecting a car into first its edge detection and then shapes and sort of a, a building block process of more and more complicated levels of abstraction. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any insight into the mechanisms that your deep learning network is figuring out? Uh, can you tell me something about the way the first layer winds up versus the final layer? Uh, so in this particular work, uh, the first layers are, are relatively simple. You, you can see that in the first couple of layers, the amount of noise start to decrease a little bit. But other than that, uh, you know, it's actually not too striking in, in terms of the features. We do some other works where we look into the interpretability and we, we inspect the layers a little more carefully. But for this particular work, like I previously mentioned, we use it as a tool to find its detections and then we examine the results in, in more detail, more, more so than why the decision was made. There are particular interference signals that are sometimes uh, m- m- mistaken by the network as detection. Also, there are particular signals that, that might have been missed by the network itself. So there, so there are some techniques in, in recent years involving basically figuring out what in the training set, because we simulated the training set, right? We don't know if the simulation is perfect or not. We try to make it as good as possible. You know, is there something in a training set? Maybe these particular examples in the training set is the cause of having this, of this network not having detected the signal. Uh, so things like that, uh, you know, are, are worth looking into. Well, we haven't talked yet about the metrics you use in the evaluation of the model. How good is this performing? So this was really framed as a supervised model, a supervised problem. So uh, it's really, uh, uh, you know, there are two classes you're classifying into. Is there a signal in this frame or is there not? And the reason we, we frame it this way and people say, oh, maybe you should use an object detection type of network or waterfall plot. This particular work, the waterfall plot are images of size from 14,000 by 3 billion. So these are extremely large images, and uh, inside them, you know, in comparison, these signals are very, occupy a very, very small fraction of the space. So, uh, you know, it's it's neither practical nor reasonable to sort of just feed this entire data in the GPU at once and do this object detection type of network. So instead, we we just do a manual clipping. We we just do windows and step through this data set, and in that way, you know. Uh, every time we, we step a window, essentially the network just classifies, is there a signal in here or is there not? Since the training set is balanced in this manner, and the, the evaluation is simply just, uh, well, the loss function itself is just a cross entropy. And the uh, evaluation is, what is the recall? The number of, number of signals that you can pick up. That also depends on your threshold as well as the, the training data. So actually the recall does not say about the recall in terms of actual detections because your simulated signals are always going to be slightly different from the real signals. But even with that, with that caveat, where does your results compare to, let's say, the more traditional methods? Yeah, so in this particular case, because of you know the wide bandwidth makes the traditional match filter imperfect, there is a plot in the figure where I compare the recall as a function of signal-to-noise ratio versus the traditional method that we used. So we are able to detect all of the uh, uh, signals that the traditional methods are able to detect and more on the lower uh, signal to ratio end. Nice. So, so as, as in terms of real detections, we detect uh, 72 additional signals, whereas the original detected uh, 21. And if I understand correctly, you also do it in a more computationally efficient point of view. Is that correct? Yes. So it's the, the, the numbers themselves in terms of speed is uh, uh, 
it's it's a little less defined because because of this resolution issue, right? So in this particular case, we know roughly how big the signal is, so we we roughly have a fixed resolution. But you can imagine that if you're blindly searching for signals which can vary greatly in terms of their size and width, you might need a much higher resolution input, in which case your speed will be slower. But in general, uh, the uh, uh, takeaway is that this method is more than fast enough to do real-time detection on these kind of experiments in the waterfall plots. Exciting. Um, How quickly do you think it can be adopted and uh, used in a more production capacity? That's part of the part of the work I will hopefully get around to later this year. There are remaining challenges of moving from this again the single observation to more of a survey standpoint, where you do need a, these multi-scale problems. You need to solve these multi-scale problems, and there's more of a, a engineering problem uh, in as well. How do you put the model in, in such a way that uh, you know it's pulling off from the ring buffer? Uh, at the correct, uh, you know, uh, reading the correct uh, data and so on and so forth. But uh, I, I think the uh, it's it's fairly doable. You had noted in the paper that there you've seen drastically uh, there's been drastic improvements upon traditional machine learning methods for object detection in recent history. Um, absolutely agree with that. Do you think finally has machine learning caught up that it's now useful to uh, your field? Or is it the other way around that there was just a reliance on older techniques that were working well enough and now we're starting to bring the machine learning in and perhaps we could have before? Yeah, so uh, I think it's a little bit mixture of both. I think one of the good things, you know, we are very excited to see the the, the interest, people's interest in, in, in our result in this paper is that we were able to demonstrate machine learning technique can actually get scientific results rather than for the sake of using machine learning. Right? On the other hand, um, there is the notion in the field that machine learning is kind of this new, mysterious kind of a science that you, know, you can only do if you're a professional in machine learning. If I want to work on, uh, use machine learning in my research, I need to collaborate with somebody who's doing machine learning research uh, whereas, in fact, uh, you know, as, as this paper shows, I mean, the, the, the machine learning we use in this work is relatively simple compared to, for example, some other work that, that I'm working on uh, in the SETI domain. This is a really well-established, supervised learning convolutional neural network problem that, you know, if, if you frame the question in the right way, the established, more established methods that, you know, anyone can implement or even download a, somebody else's implementation and run can already get you very uh, exciting scientific results. So I think the uh, hopefully the right directions to go is for more people to be aware of these methods who are, who are in our fields, who are interested in learning about them, and uh, uh, soon to implement these kind of methods into their own work. Absolutely. Yeah, the tooling gets easier, it seems like, uh, with a very sharp version of Moore's Law. <laughs> yeah. Well, what's next for you along these lines? Is this a stepping stone to bigger things, or have you kind of solved one problem and moved on to something else? So I'm 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 more of a general problem solver, and uh, the exciting thing about SETI is perhaps the most open-ended question uh, that's out there, because uh, as opposed to the fast radio burst, which is a really a supervised problem. In the uh, uh, in the SETI world, we really don't know what we're looking for. And there, you have to use uh, a slightly different method. You know, some people say some sort of anomaly detection, and I'll go into in, in a little bit what, what anomaly detection means for for this type of data. And then you can also use uh, uh, some sort of feature space. You really try to use use deep learning as a feature extraction tool 
and try to try to really understand everything that's in your data. So that's that's my uh, that's my main focus nowadays. It's it's to to start the effort of trying to understand really all of the different types of signals uh, that's in the data, and and that leads to understanding what signal seems to be rare, what signal seems to be strange. And I think that's a, that's a necessary direction for the field of SETI emerge, especially emerge with modern data science. Are you familiar with the so-called wow signal? Uh, yes, yes. So the wow signal, uh, I, I only know the very basics. So the, uh, it, it was essentially one of the signals that will fit the characteristic of what we're trying to look for now. However, the instrumentation and everything at the time was was very limited. So, and so these signals essentially, uh, like I described earlier, they fit the spatial match filter criterion. In the, in the mm-hmm. this signal lasted only the amount of time where the instrument was pointing at a particular point in the sky. Therefore, it really seems like the signal was actually coming from the sky. Mm-hmm. However, uh, there are many repeated observations uh, at, in this particular direction, and none have them. Uh, none has been able to confirm, uh, uh, re-observe uh, this signal. And therefore, it's most likely it was a one-time interference that happens to have satisfied the record. And, because, and for that, for us as well, because we co- collect so much data, right? So we, we, we do observations where we do this spatial filtering. And, and Green Bank Telescope, we don't, we don't have the capacity to look at multiple patches of the sky at the same time. So what we do is that we move the telescope every five minutes. So that we see, uh, you know, if something appears for the entire duration of the five minutes, but then disappear once we move away. And for even for that kind of filtering, we still get a lot of candidates that do satisfy that criterion that turns out uh, by closer inspection are just mere coincidence that there was a signal someone was transmitting that just happens to be on during that five minutes. Mm. And then they turn it off for the next five minutes. So if we one day do hear something novel from extraterrestrials, or I guess let me rephrase my question, what are the chances we've already heard it and we need a good outlier detection technique to finally go and see it in the archives? Well, it's hard to quantify the chance of something when nothing has been detected, right? Fair <laughs> point, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so uh, I guess the straightforward answer is we don't know. But but clearly there's, uh, you know, I, I, I would say the existing data is as good place to look as uh, new observations at this point because uh, we have already collected so much and uh, there we know there's a lot of signals in there. Most of them we know are, are terrestrial communication signals, but we have not uh, developed the capacity to look at them carefully and really examine and understand uh, what each of those signals are. And, uh, you know, should go into the, the technique of anomaly detection a little bit because, you know, a, a lot of people in SETI who have a little bit familiarity and heard about uh, machine learning are very excited about the idea of anomaly detection, which are basically, you know, the, the idea that you can find something unusual in the data, which sounds like exactly what we need for, for this particular problem. But one of the challenges I find using anomaly detection is that uh, uh, most of the data is noise, right? So, uh, you know, noise is not compressible. The, the way anomaly detection works, uh, whether whether you're doing a, a generated model or you're doing some kind of autoencoder or you do some kind of predictive uh, anomaly detection, you can only train the model if the underlying distribution of data is interpretable, right? If the, if the underlying data is mostly noise, 
then there is no prediction. And therefore, every single random noise uh, picture is equal, unlikely, and unique as the next one. That makes uh, anomaly detection uh, a little bit different. It has to be framed a little differently. So one way to do that is to, uh, if, you know, say in the communication industry, people do this as well. But for them, they want to see anomaly in a particular signal. For that, you can just collect a lot of examples of just this signal where you have high signal to noise ratio. And then you really uh, train, train the model to understand what is this normal behavior of the signal. And if you see something strange and, you know, you trigger an anomaly, that's perfectly valid. But for us, you know, we're not looking for something like that. We're looking for an unusual signal. Uh, and to do that, it has to be a combination of finding signals through some other means. For example, I just give some example. You can do some sort of energy detection. Uh, that's very, the most common way in, in Fourier space where you simply see some Fourier domain uh, pixels that just have uh, high power uh, energy detection, or you can do some kind of entropy methods. If you say that even maybe Fourier domain is not as fundamental as you would like it to be, uh, you know, some kind of, uh, because, because noise by themselves, they really contain, uh, they, they, they contain really high entropy, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're really, uh, really random for lack of a better word. So, mm -hmm. You can, you can use uh, entropy-based methods to see if there's some structure in the data at all. One of these methods can help you detect when there's a signal. And once you zoom in on all the places that are not just noise but have some sort of signal, and then you can uh, uh, perhaps apply anomaly detection and learn what most of these signals look like. Even that you know, is not the end solution of the problem because uh, typically uh, uh, anomalies are, say, you know, if something happens, uh, you know, 1% of the time or something happens one every thousand signals, that's already anomaly, right? That's, that's mm -hmm. already a, a low chance of behavior. But for us, uh, we're really looking for the, you know, one in 100 million, 100 billion uh, signals is something that could potentially be extraterrestrials, right? So... It, it will probably be a combination of uh, collecting these, um, what originally seems anomalous signals, and uh, uh, labeling them, classifying them, and collecting more of them. And therefore, you get more of a balanced data set, and you teach your model that these are actually not anomalies. Now you move on to the more anomalous signal, and then you teach the model again, this is not a new anomaly either. So it, it could be done in an iterated process. Yeah, it sounds like there's no shortage of novel challenges for a data scientist who wants to make their mark in this space. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's a, you know we, we do have a lot of data, and we welcome uh, collaborations from uh, from data scientists from a variety of different disciplines. I will say that I think the main challenge at this point facing SETI as a data science is framing the problem. Mm -hmm. so this is more of an engineering problem for someone who's familiar with the data science tools but also are interested in the problem. They want to frame the data because the data is really free form. This is just raw form data that contains everything. To frame the data in, in a form that's suitable for these, uh, these new, new algorithms is what, what I think the, the, the progress will come from. Not so much as uh, just straight up new machine learning models, which are also exciting you know, we, they, uh, with, with a few exceptions. Um, we, we can mention some of those, but uh, familiarity with the current models and most of those are developed in computer vision because they have the most excellent labeled data sets. Um, so to, 
to frame the problem that way and to also uh, gather labels. So that's another main challenge facing uh, the problem today because, yeah, we don't really have labels. Mm-hmm. I always tell uh, SETI scientists that, you know, because people have design match filters that detects several different kinds of signals. I think that will even be a great start to have something labeled and then you can train your network to, then you can, once you have some labels, you can use some latent space techniques. You can uh, use some clustering techniques, semi-supervised technique to move further. Yeah. Right? But, uh, yeah. you know, people always thought that, oh, we already have match filters. We got rid of those signals. You know, you just need to use machine learning to, to work on the rest. <laughs> it doesn't quite work like that. Labels are extremely important for modern machine learning. Yeah. No surprise at all to hear you say that. That crosses every application in industry I've looked at. Well, Jerry, this has been great. Where can people follow you online to learn more about your work and uh, and also learn more about the Breakthrough Listen Initiative? Berkeley SETI Research Center has uh, has our own website, and uh, my personal contact can also be shared uh, um, in in the in the podcast website, I guess. Great. Well, Jerry, thanks again. This is a really exciting application of deep learning uh, crossing two areas of my interest. So I was very happy to find your paper. Great. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to Data Skeptic, where the news may be fake, but the data doesn't lie. Show your support by getting a t-shirt at dataskeptic.com.